Romans chapter 3, verse 21, and we'll go through to chapter 4, verse 5. But now, a righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. On what principle? On that of observing the law? No, but on that of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. Is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles too? Yes, of the Gentiles too, since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter? If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about but not before God. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the man who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. This is God's word. Uh, As Matt Banks said, uh, it's just a short topical series for the next uh, five, six weeks. Um, Really on this one little thing, justification by faith. What does that mean? Uh, So we start off here in Romans 3. In fact, we'll be looking at precisely the same passage for the next two weeks as well, uh, but different elements of it. Uh, But let me lead us in prayer as we begin. Our Father, we will spend the whole of our lives and into eternity exploring the the riches of the scriptures, the depths that are there. And uh, this morning we consider deep things, but at the same time, very simple things. Would you help us understand more clearly? Or would you help us rejoice more in the truth that we are sinners, but we are at the same time righteous? 
Would we hold those two together, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. So as I say, that's what we're doing for the next uh, five or so weeks. Thinking, what does it mean to be one and at the same time sinful, sinners, all sorts of muck within us, all sorts of evil desires, wrong desires, distorted desires, and at the same time, righteous. That is, God looks down upon us and says, not guilty, in fact, perfect. How can we be both? And uh, it's a familiar truth in the Christian lives, hopefully. Uh, it's the truth that caused a reformation in the 16th century. Martin Luther turned the world on his head, on its head, when finally he realized, in his words, I am simul justus et peccator, simultaneously justified and a sinner. Uh, and how do you got to hold those two together? Now, the reason it matters so much is because it's hard to do, actually. Just in our thinking, in our feeling, uh, how do we uh, get our thinking straight? And how do we feel about being both of those things? And why I've decided to do this uh, and impose it upon you, you know, and uh, enjoy and share the benefits with you for the next five or six weeks. It's not for my own benefit, I can tell you that. I much prefer preaching just section by section of Scripture. It's much harder to preach topically, but... You get asked the same sort of question so often, you think, I need to do something about that. So if people ask, these sort of questions have produced the series. I'm a Christian, so God loves me in Jesus. Does that mean there's nothing I can do that makes him love me more or makes me love him less? Excuse me, makes him love me more or makes him love me less? If I'm perfect, what does it mean that I can live a life more pleasing? What does that mean? I don't understand. Question, does God love all Christians equally? Yes and no. Oops. Um, do, ooh, uh, do some Christians get more reward in heaven than others? Yes. What does that mean? How does that relate to grace? And it's a, it's a free gift anyway. Good question. Um, how should I feel? If I know I'm forgiven, if I know that God loves me, should I feel guilty? Is guilt ever a good thing? Why do we say a confession every week when we're always forgiven as it is? What's the point of that? We save time in the service. We sing more songs. Whatever it may be. It's not quite put like that, the question, to be fair. But these sort of questions are the ones that, okay, okay, let me do, I'm going to do something about this. And uh, here we have this short little series. Really it is justification by faith. That's what we're thinking about for the next few weeks. And you're unavoidably, as soon as you start with that language, you're unavoidably in the courtroom. Because it is the language, it's legal language. Because it's not the only language the Bible uses, and some much prefer to think, well, can't we dwell on other Bible images? Uh, we're sort of, we're lost children, and God is a father calling us home. That is true, that is true. But underpinning that truth, actually, is this legal language. In a court of law, you are either condemned as guilty or justified, innocent, righteous. You need to understand justified and righteous, completely the same language, completely the same term, even if it gets translated in different ways. So we're unavoidably in a courtroom for the next few weeks. Now, I don't know about your uh, courtroom experience. Only once have I spent any prolonged time in a, in a court of law. I was on the right side, not the wrong side. I was in the jury, uh, not the defendant, you'll be pleased to know. 
And um, we're a funny old bunch. The, you know, the, do you know, have you ever had you done your jury service and you're endlessly sent down and there's about 50 of you and then they pick about 12 of you and you get annoyed if you're not picked and that sort of thing. Anyway, eventually you're settled as the 12 of the jury and we were a pretty odd bunch. One woman was just so clearly scared that when she had to swear her oath, she just couldn't get the words out. She was just terrified by the whole thing of uh, being uh, on a court, uh, enormously uh, anxious. One woman behind me on the jury had a headscarf uh, on and was clearly distracted. After a while, I realized it's because she's listening to her iPod. And uh, the judge also uh, recognized that he was not best pleased with her, and uh, we got rid of her and had a substitute company. That's pretty off, isn't it, uh, when you're making sort of uh, life-and-death decisions on people. I was there, Mr. Keene, you know, writing down everything. Uh, a couple of points in the proceedings. I was unhappy with the barristers, so I passed the judge a note. Surely the barrister ought to ask this question. I would do a better job than him. I didn't say that in my note. That's just what I thought. But uh, the judge had to tell me to calm down and do my role. Um, and I was uh, somewhat result. I was going to be the foreman of the jury. I was determined on that. And I was pathetically pleased when I was elected uh, uh, foreman of the jury, because, you know, I was just pathetic. He felt like the captain of the team. Uh, but I was very satisfied with that, of course, until it came to the moment of delivering a verdict. And at the end of a week's trial, you go away and you sit and you hack it away as a jury and you work out what you're going to do and you deliberate and you re- review and you sift and you sift. Eventually you reach a verdict and the judge says, if you reach a verdict and you as the foreman stand up, uh, and the judge says, of course, do you find the defendant guilty or not guilty? And I don't think I'll ever utter one single word with the same impact as that upon an individual's life. Guilty. And I wasn't so pleased then that that was my job. Guilty. That's a solemn word to utter. Now the Bible is clear that one day all of us appear in God's courtroom. He's a perfectly just judge. The whole of the Bible screams out, he is righteous in his judgments. He always gets it right. He cannot but be just. That would be to deny himself. And so the book of Romans is largely concerned with the question, given that I'm guilty, and all of us are guilty of failing to live up to the standards, failing to honour and obey and love this God, given that we're guilty, how can we be right with him? First three chapters, Paul has explained that humanity has a serious problem. You could, just before our reading, chapter 3, verse 20 is where he's got to in his argument. Chapter 3, verse 20, therefore no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, become conscious of sin. No one is righteous. No one is innocent. No one is perfect. Everyone is guilty before God. That is our predicament. And so this paragraph, and really we're in uh, verses 21 to 26 this morning. Here is the explanation of how God can forgive us. How he can call us righteous when we're guilty. And crucially, how he can do so in a manner which is fair or just. Because you know, in a human court, and these sort of things, uh, they'll they'll crop up in the papers from time to time, outrageous sentencing by judge, ridiculous statement by judge in court, whatever it may be. But, you know, imagine you're in a court, and uh, you're part of the jury perhaps, and it's a rape case. 
and the defendant is clearly guilty. And the foreman stands up and says, guilty. And the judge says, yeah, this bloke's guilty, but it's a Friday. I'm feeling kind. You can go. Outrageous is what we view that. Wicked is what we view that. Completely unfair to the victims is what we call that. Just mercy on its own is not justice. It's unacceptable to us in a human court of law. So how can God just say, yeah, all of humanity is guilty, but I'll forgive them? How can he do that and still be fair, true, just? That's what this paragraph is concerned with. Look, I'm just going to make three statements. I'm not really explaining everything that's in the paragraph. As I say, we'll come back uh, next time and uh, unpack a few more uh, words, really, in the paragraph. But here are three statements. Uh, We'll work through them. And then think, how does God love us? Okay, so these three things. God hates sinners and loves sinners. Got to hold those two together. Second, God the Father punishes his son and justifies sinners. Third, God displays justice and shows mercy. There's all of those. Okay, so those three statements about God reveal how he can love us. Let's go through them. First, here's a strong statement. God hates sinners and loves sinners. But how do you feel about that one? Often feel a sort of shorthand, a Christian soundbite is, God hates the sin but loves the sinner. Now, I don't think you can say that biblically. It's not true, according to the Bible. I guess we get that just in normal human experience. The compulsive liar, someone who you who just know you can never take them seriously. The compulsive liar. We don't let them say to us, either I'm a truthful person, just sometimes lies jump out of me. No, they're your lies. It's not that they're frogs in your pocket and brruh, 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 they sort of just jump out. They're you. When you lie, that's you. It isn't something separate from you. Or the angry woman. You want no time for someone who's always angry when she says, I'm a calm person personally, but sometimes anger just bubbles up within me. No, it's your anger. It's not that you've just drunk a can of Coke too quickly, it just bubbles up. It is your anger. It is you that's angry. You can't separate your actions from you. You can't say, well, I'm a very good person, just occasionally sin, just bubbles up. No, it's us. That's what we are. Our sin, our wrongdoing, it's a fundamental part of our identity, a reflection of who we are. As Paul would declare it, verse 23, all have sinned. That's what we've done. And all fall short of the glory of God, or all lack the glory of God. We don't have it. That's who we are. We are lackers of God's glory. We are intrinsically those with a problem. So I won't go on at length, but just so we're clear, there's no pleasure in this, but we need to understand it so we understand what Jesus has done. The Bible says God hates sinners. Psalm 5 verse 5. The arrogant cannot stand in your presence. You hate all who do wrong. You destroy those who tell lies. Bloodthirsty and deceitful men, the Lord abhors. 
Or Psalm 11, verse 5. The Lord examines the righteous, but the wicked and those who love violence, his soul hates. He hates. Now, we don't often, perhaps, talk of this. And some object to the description of God as hating sinners, of being angry. Uh, it's quite a common thing, isn't it? People will say, oh, I, I like the idea of God as love. That's a nice thing. But I've got no time for the idea of God hating Eve or hating sinners. I've got no time for that. Because the question is, where do you get the idea of God as loving from? It's only the Bible. It's not from Greek myths and Greek gods. They're not lovers. They're fickle creatures. It's not from Eastern religion. They're warriors. They're always violent. The the only place in the whole of history you get the idea of a God who is loving is the Bible. But it does also say he's angry with sin. He hates sin. You can't rip those two apart, really. So his anger, his hatred of sinners, it's a personal reaction to sin. Okay, justification, we're in the law courts. But the problem with the sort of whole law court uh, picture is normally in a law court, you would hope, a judge is somewhat removed emotionally, as it were. You want a judge who is neutral. If a girl has been assaulted, you don't want her dad as the judge. It's not right it's in a human being. It's not appropriate. He's going to be emotionally involved in that. You want a dispassionate God. And yet, when it comes to God, he's a perfect judge. He cannot but be just and righteous. And yet he is personally involved. His hatred of sin is his personal response. It's not just a dispassionate one. His anger is his personal offence. His anger is his steady, unrelenting, unremitting, uncompromising, personal antagonism to evil in all its forms. And so the Bible tells me clearly that God hates me as a guilty rebel, and yet, and yet he loves me. And that's what's so divine about this and so unlike human love. Because it isn't that God looks down and says, they're nice, I'll love them. God looks down and says, they are wicked, and I hate them, and I will still love them. That is the extraordinary thing. In the verse that perhaps more people know than any other, John 3.16, God so loved the world. What sort of world did he love? One that was in hostility and rebellion against him. It's that world that God loves, that he gave his only son. So until the moment when I became a Christian... Until the moment when I trusted in Jesus, God hated Matt Fuller and God loved Matt Fuller, both. But at the moment I become a Christian, his hatred is removed because that fell upon Jesus and all that remains is his love for me. At the moment that I become a Christian... God hates sinners and he loves sinners. When you become a Christian, all that remains is his love. But both are true. Okay, second statement about the Lord, we're going to say. Second statement, God the Father, he punishes his son and justifies sinners. 
Here, in one sense, is the heart of the cross. If you've been a Christian for a while, I, I hope you understand that. That upon the cross, there is just quite simply an exchange. Just as at the end of a sports match, you might exchange shirts with someone of the opposition. What yours goes to them and what's them goes to you is an exchange upon the cross. Christ takes the punishment for our sin. We get the reward for his obedience. It's a swap. Verse 25, of course, is the key Verse here, God presented him, Jesus, as a sacrifice of atonement. Sin is punished. It's not that God merely says, well, there's a crime and I'll just forgive it. The crime is punished. Sin is punished. Now, lots of people today don't like the idea of God God punishing upon the cross. But if you get rid of that, if you reject that, then God is a corrupt judge who simply ignores crime. And that is, well, that's a blasphemy to say that God just doesn't care. It's an overturning of the moral order. It's a violation of God's own character. You're saying that a holy God doesn't care about sin. He must judge it. But he does so by judging his son. So the story is told uh, of a man who, uh, in the Napoleonic War, is conscripted to serve. And off he goes to, he's meant to go off to war. But uh, uh, he's got a family at home and young children. And a friend steps in and says, I'll go for you. And the substitute goes off to war in France and uh, serves in the bloke's place until, tragically, he's killed. Later, two years later, the original soldier is conscripted again. But he says, I don't need to serve. He's called up and hauled before a, a judge in court. And he pleads, no, look, I, I've been conscripted once. My representative went. My representative served. My representative died. You can't call me up again. Because that's taken place for me. And the judge says, well, okay, I accept the substitute's service was your service. His death is yours. And so the story goes, the judge allows the plea. Now, it's a funny story, but you see the point? That's true. You can't serve and be killed twice. In Jesus, God has punished my sin, yet, but he's punished me. I, I am so represented by Jesus that when he dies as a punishment for sin, I die as a punishment for sin, because I'm united to him, and I can't be punished twice. So God punishes his son, the father punishes his son, for me. But the other side of that great transaction, that exchange, is that I receive Christ's reward. I think for years I thought of the cross a bit like this. Um, uh, here's, here's the sort of line of neutrality. And uh, I bogged it, so I'm minus 10. But it's okay, because Jesus has obeyed perfectly, so he's plus 10. And so what happens on a cross is they're cancelling out, so everyone's at zero. I think I thought of it a bit like that. Whereas actually what the Bible is teaching is, yeah, okay, I'm minus 10, Christ is plus 10. And what happens upon the cross is there's, it's an exchange. So he is punished, and I am rewarded. Christ takes the penalty of the law and we receive the reward 
of the law. Try to think of it this way if this helps. In Genesis 2, right at the beginning of the Bible, before Adam and Eve sin, Adam is, uh, he's done nothing wrong. Adam has done nothing wrong and he's in relationship with God, but he's not righteous. Because although Adam has done nothing wrong in Genesis chapter 2, there's always the potential he falls off and does wrong. So you can say he's on probation, as it were. Now, some will know that. Perhaps you start a new job at a new company and they say, okay, we're going to put you on a three-month probation period. And you start day one and you've done nothing wrong. But there is the potential they won't keep you on after three months. There is the potential you don't quite get it right. You don't quite fit in. You have no security when you're on probation. And so work is just a little bit anxious, perhaps a little bit stressful during that probation period. For us, if you're a Christian, it's not that you've been forgiven, pardoned, and are now on probation. Not that, because it's not that just we're back to zero or neutral, but we've been given Christ's reward. So it is as if you start with a new company, and rather than them saying you're on three months probation, you start day one, and they say, here is your 50 years of service to the company. And we... We view you as having done 50 years impeccable service, 50 years salary, 50 years pension provisions accrued. You are this company's most esteemed colleague, uh, 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 colleague, worker ever. You cannot ever fall out of favor with this company and you receive that on day one. Do you see the difference? When we say that there's an exchange upon the cross, it's not just that we're pardoned but that we receive the reward of life, eternal life. The reward of adoption. So in a normal human court of law, all that you can get is the defendant. You stand there as the defendant waiting for the verdict. The best you can get is you're free to go. In God's court, what happens is, it's not just you're free to go, you're pardoned, but you're free to come. You're free to come now and enjoy a relationship with God as Father. You're free to come and enjoy eternal life. You're free to come. It's very, very different. We don't receive the penalty of the law. Jesus receives that. And because he fully fulfilled the demands of the law, we get his reward. That's the exchange of the cross. It's a legal verdict upon us. Changes nothing inside of us. Righteousness is a verdict upon us. So it's a legal verdict, but it transforms everything. Imagine a millionaire, a millionaire who one day uh, uh, in his mansion, uh, some young scamp comes in and tries to burgle him and seal his collection of whatever it is, uh, vintage medals or whatever it may be. Uh, but the millionaire catches the young scamp breaking into his house, but decides rather than punishing him, rather than handing over him over to the priest, he adopts this young lad. Now, legally, at that point, the boy becomes his son. Nothing changes internal to the young scamp. His DNA is not altered. His faces are not digitally, what, digitally, surgically altered to look like the, uh, the millionaire. It's only a legal change, but it changes everything. Because now the boy is a millionaire. Now the boy will inherit all. The boy is... Yes, he's not punished, but he's rewarded. 
That's the extraordinary thing. God the Father punishes his son and justifies sinners. That means we're not merely pardoned if you're a Christian, but you are loved, adopted, awarded eternal life. That's the exchange. God the Father punishes his son, justifies sinners. And so third and briefly, this is how God displays justice and shows mercy. So again, 25 and 26. God presented him, Jesus, as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. Why? He did this to demonstrate his justice. Because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time. So to be a just judge, so as to be just, and the one who justifies, declares righteous, those who have faith in Jesus. How is it that David in the Old Testament is not only forgiven, but declared righteous when he commits adultery, when he commits murder? It's because of this demonstration of justice. Here is where justice and mercy meet at the cross. It is so, therefore, when we come before God the Father as judge, we don't ask for mercy from him. What we ask is for justice. And when we come before God the Father as judge, it is as if Jesus is there. Not that Jesus will say, this man, Matt Fuller, is innocent, because I'm not, I'm guilty. Not that Jesus will say, poor bloke, he had such a rough upbringing, such a rough childhood, he had no chance of living a decent life. None of those things. But... But Jesus would say, Matt Fuller is guilty, however I have paid for him. He's paid. And so Jesus would say, I plead with the Father, not for mercy, but for justice. And the Father says, yes, that's right. That is the plan we created together to demonstrate justice and love before the creation of the world. So again, what we mustn't think, we mustn't think that at the end of time, when we stand in God's courtroom, that there is Jesus who is loving, pleading before a father who is a harsh judge. It's not that. But rather, Jesus, who is justice, who says the crime has been paid for, you cannot pay for crimes twice, pleading with his father who is love, saying, Father, you... Before the creation of the world, you determined that you would send, and I've agreed with you, that I would go and pay for sin as you, perfect love, perfectly loving Father. I now come before you and say, yes, I bring you the justice that the crimes have been atoned for, sin has been paid for. What does God think of me? Look, it's blunt. But to those of us who wouldn't call ourselves Christians, just to be honest, what the scripture said is that God hates you and he loves you if you're not a Christian. Both are true. He hates the sin you commit and you commit them. He hates and he loves. That's the extraordinary thing. Now, if you're a Christian and you've trusted Jesus' death in your place, you're united to him. It's much more simple in one sense. God loves you. 
because his hatred of sin has been paid for justly already upon the cross. One day you'll stand before the judge, but the verdict is in. Justified. And that status change means God says, come. You are welcome. You have the status of eternal life adopted as my child because Jesus has given that to you. Now, we're going to unpack it practically what that means next week, really. It just pegs in the ground today. But do you start to see, because that is true, because we deserve nothing, actually, but God's anger, he chooses to bestow upon us his love. And justly so. It's not an arbitrary act of mercy. Anger is removed because it's paid for at Jesus at the cross. Therefore, you can never fall out of his love. Because it was never down to you anyway. God doesn't love you because of what you do. God doesn't love you because you're agreeable to him. God doesn't love you because you obey him. He loves you. He determined to love you before the creation of the world. He loves this world, so he sent Jesus Christ. And if you're a Christian, all you know is his love, because his anger is gone, taken justly by Jesus. Let me do this in prayer. Our Father, these are simple truths and complex truths. And Father, in the midst of all I've stated and said from your word this morning, I pray that we hear what we need to hear. We hear the truth at a simple level, if that's what we need to hear this week. That uh, some of us who, who get a little confused on these things start to see some of the nuance. But Father, above all else, would we know that if we've trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ... He has taken all possible punishment for us and we have received his reward, eternal life, adoption as your children and we can never fall out of your love. Would we know that and would we rejoice in that? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.